All right, we are going to go ahead and start just a couple minutes early today. Um, we've got a lot, a lot, a lot to cover. So um, as folks are trickling in, we're just going to go ahead and get things rolling. Um, I'm going to keep the review uh, from what we've done over past weeks a little more brief this week just because of the uh, volume of content that we've got to cover. So um, I'm thinking that perhaps next week will be our final week together working through Jude. So, so bear with me here. Um, uh, again, just a really brief intro to the philosophy of my approach to reading scripture. This comes from um, Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes, Grasping God's Word. It's a five-step process. First, we want to understand what the text meant to the author and the original audience. That's how we begin to understand what is the principle that God would communicate to us through his word today. Right. Second, we want to understand what are the differences between the original audience and ourselves. So they lived in a different time. They spoke a different language. They may be in a different place in redemptive history. Right? And those are things that we need to understand because there are certain aspects of Scripture that are very specifically culturally bound. So, for instance, when we go to Leviticus and we read about some of the priestly laws in Leviticus, well, those apply to a very specific point in time. Right? But we're no longer in the land covenant era right, of redemptive history. And so those particular pieces may not apply to us in the same way that they did to the original audience. So then third, understanding what those differences are, we identify what is the principle right, that transcends culture, context, history. Right? And then step four, we look at the rest of Scripture. We consult with church history to understand, right, does the principle that we're pulling out of Scripture stand up, right, against the witness of the rest of Scripture. So we believe in the prospicuity of Scripture, which is that Scripture interprets other Scripture. So if we take one passage of Scripture and arrive at a conclusion, a principle, right, that is clearly disproven by other aspects of Scripture, then we need to go back to step one and start over again. And then step five, once we've understood that principle clearly, it's held up to the test of other scripture and to church history, right? Then we can apply that principle to our lives today. So just a review of where we've been so far. Um, our very first week together, we asked who was the author of Jude. And uh, self-explanatory, it was Jude. Jude is the brother of James, the bishop of ancient Jerusalem, and also the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we know about Jude was that he was a missionary preacher, right, an itinerant preacher who traveled uh, around the churches in Galilee that had been planted by the apostles themselves. Uh, Jude's intended audience uh, were first-generation Jewish Christians living in the land of Galilee, right, his own home country. Um, and these churches had been planted by the apostles themselves. So Jude's genre is pretty unique for the New Testament. Um, it's, it's not narrative like we have in the Gospels or in Acts. It's not, um, it's not really a, a pastoral general epistle like in the same sense that Paul's letters to the churches um, are pastoral general letters. So the genre that we're looking at here is kind of a Jewish apocalyptic style, somewhat similar to what we see, for instance, in Revelation um, or in 2 Peter. Um, Jude was written probably one of the very earliest books of the Bible to be written, published, and to be circulated around the churches um, of the day. So um, I'm shooting for somewhere between 48 and 58 AD, which means this was published and circulated even before the Gospels um, in, in the early church. So Jude tells us very clearly in his introduction to the letter that he had intended to write this to all of the churches um, a long time ago, but that's become much more urgent. There is an issue that has arisen in the churches that he needs to deal with, and he's going to urge his audience to contend for the faith once for all handed down. So Jude has a few things to tell us about his opponents. First of all, long ago they were destined for condemnation. He seems to believe that his opponents in the church are the objects of prophecy that goes way back in time. Okay, He calls them ungodly people, and this is a word that pops up all over the place in Jude. I say base, 
right? When we look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which most assuredly Jude would have read in the synagogue, right? Asabes shows up constantly in contrast against the righteous or the people of God, right? It's ungodly people who do what they want, who scoff at God and his word. And third, he says that they pervert grace into sensuality, okay? Which most assuredly means that they're using grace as a license to engage in all kinds of illicit sexual practices. And then lastly, he accuses them of denying the very Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than submitting to Jesus' authority, they have become a law unto themselves. So then Jude moves into providing us with three examples of how God has historically responded to such things. First, he points to the unbelieving Israelites after the Exodus. And this is recorded for us in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Right? These people um, who had seen God deliver them through miraculous works now are exemplifying faithlessness. They don't believe in the power or the command of God, and they have provoked God's wrath and punishment. Second, he provides us with the fallen angels, right? which he references back to Genesis chapter 6, um, a passage of scripture that is elaborated on greatly in the pseudepigraphal, apocryphal, non-canonical book of 1 Enoch in chapters 6 through 11. Um, these angels rebelled against God, and uh, according to 1 Enoch, um, building upon Genesis chapter 6, they took human women as their wives and had children with them, right? which was to abandon his creational purpose for them. Right? And then they taught and encouraged others to do the same which provoked God's wrath and judgment. And then third, he points us to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose sexual immorality and pursuit of unnatural desire provoked, again, God's wrath and punishment. So Jude brings several indictments against his opponents. First of all, he calls them dreamers, um, which is definitely intended by Jude in a pejorative way. His opponents seem to be citing some sort of special revelation that they've received from their own dreams. And they're using this as a source of final authority for doctrine and for ethics. But unfortunately, these contradict that of Scripture and the apostolic faith once handed down. Second, he says that they defile the flesh. And this phrase appears repeatedly in 1 Enoch, which Jude seems to be using heavily as source material. Uh, Enoch uses it to describe the sinful rebellion of the angels against God through abominable sexual acts. And Jude is most certainly using it here to further address his opponent's sexual sin. In this, they're both like the fallen angels and like the men of Sodom. And Jude expects that God will handle them in the same way. Third, he says that they reject authority. Uh, Jude's opponents are like both the post-Exodus Israelites and the fallen angels in that they fail to acknowledge their role and their place in the order of God's creation. Rather than submitting to their rightful position in obedience to God, they subvert his authority and the authoritative teaching of Jesus in order to pursue their own plans instead. Fourth, he says that they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, Jude's opponents, again, they're claiming to receive special divine revelation, which explicitly contradicts all of the actual divine revelation found in the law and the gospel, right, which are contained for us in the scriptures and the apostolic faith once for all handed down. They're claiming divine authority to challenge the apostles, the prophets, Moses, and even Christ himself. Jude makes clear that they're rejecting the law of God without even understanding what it is or what it means. This is a lot like some of our contemporaries who reject the moral law of the scriptures by citing other scriptures, either out of context or interpreted in a way that would be completely foreign to the authorial intent. Lastly, Jude says that they are condemned by their own carnality. Their lack of self-control in terms of their greed, their power tactics over others, and their sexual licentiousness proves to everyone around that they are not from God. So then Jude offers three more historic biblical figures to which he would liken his opponents. First, Cain, right? The story of Cain is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4. Cain was a rebel who didn't believe that God's judgment would ever come. He challenged God's authority in order to live according to his own greed and lust. 
And he enticed others to do the same. Second, he says that they're like Balaam. Now, Balaam was a prophet for money. We can read about him in Numbers chapters 22 through 24, and then again in chapter 31. He enticed others to join him in sin for his own financial gain. He was a prophet for money. And then third, he says that they are like Korah's rebellion. Right? Now, Korah was a priest whose pride led him to reject godly authority and enticed others to join his rebellion, which brought disaster upon the whole congregation. And with that final reference to Korah's rebellion, it's also his intent to demonstrate to his audience a model, as established by Moses and by Aaron, for dealing with those who reject authority and who rebel against God's law. First, we're to teach everything that God has commanded Second, when people are in in error, we're to offer admonishment. We warn those who are in error. If they persist in their error, we separate from those who persist. We still intercede on their behalf. We pray for those who have departed from the way. But ultimately, we leave the work of final judgment to God. And this is an important distinction because in our culture, the very act of admonition is considered judgmentalism. Right? By many of our contemporaries. Jude does not see it that way. Jude sees it as our gracious, merciful, loving response when people depart from God's plan for their lives to tell them the truth about it. That's not judgmentalism. That's admonition. Ultimate final judgment rests in the hands of God alone. So in verse 12, Jude returns to his list of indictments against his opponents. He says that these people are blemishes upon your love feast, right? Which, as we clarified sometime last month, um, this is what they called the Eucharist. So Jude's opponents were eating the Eucharist without fear, though they should be afraid of the judgment of God. And this indictment that they eat without fear implicitly also indicts Jude's intended audience. How is it that they've allowed these people to continue to eat among them? much less without any sense of fear of the wrath of God. It's their responsibility, as it's the responsibility of any disciple of Jesus, to let their brothers know when they've fallen into sin. This is why Jude is so emphatic at the introduction of his letter in urging his audience to contend. Rather than passively sitting by and watching these people eating and drinking condemnation upon themselves, blemishing the whole gathering of the church, that Jude calls his opponents shepherds may be another case of him weaponizing their terminology against them. They clearly present themselves as leaders in the church, but their behavior betrays them. God calls people to servant leadership in his church, and the fact that they are serving themselves rather than serving the sheep demonstrates that they are not of God. So Jude employs four metaphors then to describe his opponents. First, he calls them waterless clouds. Now, as an agrarian society, the Galileans would have immediately understood this without explanation. If the rain doesn't fall, then crops fail, and this can spell disaster for farmers. Imagine watching heavy clouds as they pass across your fields that are desperate for water, but they don't drop a single drop of rain. They've refused to fulfill their purpose. In the same way, right, Jude calls them fruitless trees. Right? Fruitless fruit trees don't bring any value to the land. If they're not productive, if they're diseased or they're dying, any farmer who knows his business will pull them out of that valuable real estate and replace them with something that will produce. Now, Jude's opponents have come into the church promising divine revelation, but bringing no such thing. Further, their sexual appetites are outside the bounds of God's creational order. They've refused to be and to do what they were created to be and to do. And while those first two metaphors speak of Jude's opponent's failure to deliver the things that they promise, his third metaphor addresses what they do bring. Right? Just as the waves of the sea bring flotsam and jetsam to shore, Jude's opponents are bringing a lot of junk into the church, especially their shameful behavior. As already mentioned repeatedly, their shameful greed and lust are evident in everything that they do. 
Lastly, Jude's metaphor of wandering stars addresses how his opponents have deviated away from the path of righteousness. It is observable how all of Jude's lists thus far have concluded with examples of apocalyptic judgment. In his three historical examples of God's wrath against sinners, he concluded with Sodom and Gomorrah, where entire cities were utterly consumed in fire from heaven. In his three examples of peoples to whom he likened his opponents, he concluded with those who perished in Korah's rebellion. Entire families were swallowed up by the earth. And now he concludes his metaphors with wandering stars condemned to utter darkness. Now, while the previous three metaphors could have a reference in canonical scripture, there's no obvious passage to which this might be alluding. And again, it seems that Jude was leaning heavily upon First Enoch. In this case, chapters 18 and 21, which describes the eschatological punishment of stars that failed to follow the heavenly course set for them by the Creator. Because Jude's opponents have similarly departed the way, he expects that they will receive a similar fate. In verse 14, Jude circles back to his initial proposition in verse 4 that his opponents were condemned long ago. If somehow all of his arguments up to this point have not sufficed to convince his audience of the danger of his opponents, this would serve as his final trump card. He quotes from Enoch, who he believes prophesied against those who have crept in unnoticed. Jude introduces Enoch as the seventh from Adam, an extremely important character for Jude and his audience. Seven is a number of completion and perfection in Jewish numerology, And Enoch is listed as being the seventh generation from Adam. On account of this, Jewish mystics revered him. Jewish tradition held that Enoch remained faithful in an era of profound ungodliness, which is why he serves as such a useful function in Jude's argument. Jude's uh, scripture teaches that Enoch did not die, uh, but because of his exceeding faithfulness to God, he was taken to be with God. Jude quotes from a prophetic utterance in 1 Enoch, a strong condemnation against the ungodly. Right, again, he's using the same word, asebeis. Now, this is the first and only example of a direct quotation in Jude. And it's important that Jude is citing what he he considers to be divine revelation. Perhaps not the whole of 1 Enoch, but at the very least, this specific prophecy he does consider to be divine. While his opponents are quick to blasphemously pronounce judgment on their own authority, Jude follows the example of the archangel Michael in his disputation against the devil. He allows a higher authority to pronounce judgment against his opponents. The effect here is that Jude is deferring to God's own judgment against his opponents. Having read their conviction and their sentence, Jude summarizes the offenses of his opponents one final time. First, they're grumblers and malcontents. Just like the unfaithful after the Exodus, they've seen the powerful works of God, and yet they still deny his power and commands. Just like the fallen angels, they've rejected their role in creation and are teaching and encouraging others to do the same. Just like Cain... Korah, they do not accept the judgment of God and are actively challenging his authority. Second, they follow their lusts. They're being their authentic selves, if you might. Just like the fallen angels and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, they've rebelled against God and they've committed abominable sexual sin. Just like Cain, they do whatever pleases themselves without concern for the statutes of God or for the harm that this may bring to their neighbors. Third, their loudmouths. Literally translated, Jude writes that their mouths speak with great swelling. Just like Cain, they boast of their wickedness. Just like Korah's rebels, uh, rebels, they speak against the Lord's anointed without fear. And fourth, they, plat- they flatter people for profit. Just like Balaam, they're willing to say whatever people want them to say even if it goes against the will and command of God for safety, security, 
and financial gain. Which leads us to our text this morning from Jude chapter, uh, verses 17 through 19. Jude writes, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast that blessed hope of everlasting life, which you've given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Having laid out his case that his opponents are the ungodly people against whom Enoch prophesied, Jude now appeals to the witness of the apostles who personally planted the churches in Galilee. These are characters who were personally close and familiar to Jude's audience. Now, at some point in time, the apostles personally warned Jude's audience that all of this would happen. Ben Witherington in his commentary, writes um, the word scoffers. This is an extremely derogatory term in early Judaism, referring to a typical Old Testament type of troublemaker, one who despises or ignores and mocks true religion and or morality. Scoffers characterize this last age and live according to their desires and do ungodly things, not merely thinking ungodly thoughts. Examples of such ungodly scoffing abound in the Old Testament, and the best known perhaps is from Psalm uh, chapter 1, where the psalmist declares, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. As noted in Strong's Concordance, empiketes, a word that's translated as scoffers, frequently entails connotations of false teaching or false prophecy. Now, in the Gospels, it's very common to see Jesus warning his disciples that such people would appear after his passion and resurrection. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is recorded as saying, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from the thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them, these people, by their fruits. So you can see it's hardly a coincidence that Jude himself used the metaphor of fruitless trees to describe his opponents. Then in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus again warns his disciples that many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness, antinomianism, will be increased... The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here, Jesus is predicting that these false teachers would promote antinomianism. It's literally the word used in the Greek here in Matthew 24, which would lead the faithful astray into apostasy. And he's encouraging the faithful not to be so deceived. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus again predicts the rise of false prophets who would deliver signs and portents to lead astray. It's not difficult to connect this with the revelatory dreams that Jude's opponents claim to be delivering. So, being obedient to the Great Commission where Jesus instructs his disciples to make more disciples. And then what? Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. So it follows that the apostles shared Jesus' warnings wherever they planted churches, including the churches in Galilee to whom Jude is writing. 
For example, Peter in his second epistle wrote, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your conscience, your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Likewise, Paul passed along warnings about such false teachers. In his first pastoral letter to his protege, Timothy, he wrote, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, or the eschaton, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Then in his second pastoral letter to Timothy, he wrote, Understand this, that in the last days, the eschaton, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, their authentic selves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, te- not loving good, Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Now, his direction to avoid such people is wholly in line with the models set forth by Moses and Aaron in number 16. After warning those who are in error, right, providing admonition, If they persist, it's best to separate from them. So in the next chapter, Paul continued, For the time is coming when people will not not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth. Now, this next point is so important and so applicable to our contemporary world today that I would be remiss if I didn't camp out for a moment and look at it in the original language. While Judas certainly calling out his opponents and exhorting his audience to contend for the faith, he makes extremely clear that they, these people, his opponents, they're the divisive ones. So look with me at the text here. The verse begins with the familiar hutoi, right? These people. He's used this pronoun five times in his letter to reference his opponents. Next, we see a scene. Sorry. Um, A scene. Now, that's the simple present indicative third person plural verb. That's a, a mouthful. But simply translates, they are. So these people, they are. And then we have the nominative masculine plural article, hoi. These are them, or these are the ones. Finally, apodiorizontes, the present active participle of apodiorizo, which itself is a compound of three distinct words. Okay, so we have apo, which is a preposition that typically is translated out of or from. Okay, second, D, which is a preposition, which typically is translated as by or through. And then lastly, orizo, which is a verb to make um, a boundary, to mark out the boundary or limits of a place or a thing. Now, this word only appears once in the New Testament right here in Jude, and it doesn't show up anywhere uh, at all in the rest of Scripture, um, including in the Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament. So scholars are divided into two separate camps as to how it ought to be translated. Some prefer to translate it to make distinctions, and others prefer to cause division. Now, at face value, it may seem that there's little difference between the two, but there are interpretive implications for the choice that we make here. Now, it's fair to say that Jude's opponents make distinctions in a variety of ways. They're distinguishing their own system of doctrine and morality from that of the apostles. Some have also pointed out the way that they seem to be showing favoritism among certain members of the church for their own gain. 
In other words, they're giving preference to the rich and the powerful, right? Now, this is a preferred translation among contemporary revisionists who, preferring to avoid engagement with the explicitly sexual nature of Jude's opponent's error, would rather focus on matters of social justice within the church. Now, while the apostles would absolutely take issue with such favoritism, they do elsewhere in Scripture, right? Favoring the powerful and the wealthy over the weak and the poor. This is an issue. But to say that this is the primary issue that Jude takes with his opponents would be to utterly miss his message. So I would argue in favor of the translation causing division. And I have the weight of a number of scholars, including the preeminent Greek scholar Bill Mounts. So if you don't want to take my word for it, you should definitely take his. All right, so why is this important? Thank you. I'm glad that you asked. Two weeks ago, bishops, clergy, and lay people representing the vast majority of Anglicans worldwide, easily 80% of the global Anglican communion, gathered in Kigali, Rwanda. Now, they gathered to discuss their concerns about revisionist doctrine and practice that has emerged in a handful of provinces in the global Anglican communion. And they made a mutual commitment to how they intend to respond. I'm going to do my very best to offer a brief, though possibly overly simplistic, history of the Anglican Communion today. If you haven't availed yourself of the opportunity to participate in Nick's exploration class, then I would commend that to you. He's going to provide a much more helpful and thorough introduction to Anglicanism than I will today. All right, so here's my disclaimer. I'm just just going to read this to you. Todd Weedman's interpretation of Anglican history, any views, thoughts, and opinions expressed here are solely that of Todd Weedman and do not reflect the views, opinions, policies, or position of Grace Anglican Church. Right. First, the word Anglican, right? Simply another way of saying English. It specifically refers to the ecclesial tradition of the Church of England, which was carried around the globe by English missionaries. During the days of the British Empire, the established church in British colonies was simply the Church of England. But as British colonies became independent from the empire, so did their national churches, which also by and large ceased to be established state churches. While those national churches became structurally independent from the English mother church, their natural bonds of affinity persisted. Okay, So along comes... 1867. Charles Longley, then the Archbishop of Canterbury, called for a gathering of bishops of Anglican patrimony from around the world to gather at Lambeth Palace to, and I quote, discuss matters of practical interest and pronounce what we deem expedient in resolutions which may serve as safeguards to future action. So recognition by the Archbishop of Canterbury functioned de facto to determine which churches and bishops were in communion together. Now, broadly speaking, these were churches and bishops in the English tradition that had been established by the missionary efforts of the Church of England, who were Episcopal in in their ecclesiology, that means they had bishops, um, and whose doctrine and worship were guided by the formularies of the Church of England, namely the 1662 Book of Common Prayer and the ordinal attached to it, the 39 Articles of Religion, and the two books of homilies. Generally, such conferences have been called by the Archbishop of Canterbury every decade. So actually, the very first reference to the Anglican Communion by name is not as ancient as uh, you may have been led to believe. It actually shows up the very first time um, in the 1930s at the Lambeth Conference. Um, in the year 1930. That's the point where greater structure began to be developed for global Anglicanism, right? What we know today as the Anglican Communion. Was it always at Lambeth at that point? It it had been hosted at some different places. Originally, um, the uh, the very first one... um, Archbishop Longley wanted to host it at Westminster, but there were politics involved in the Church of England, so he ended up hosting it 
um, there um, at Lambeth Palace. But it's been at different places. Sometimes it's been at Kent. It's always been in England somewhere. Interestingly, the very first Lambeth Conference in the, in the 1860s, the Archbishop of York and his entire province refused to attend because they thought it was some sort of political scheming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so moving forward a little bit, at the 1968 Lambeth Conference, the Anglican Consuls, Consultative Council was formed. Now, this is the closest thing in the Anglican Communion to like a global synod with the caveat that it has absolutely no legislative power whatsoever. Now, the purpose and the function of the ACC is outlined in the 1968 resolution that formed it, essentially to facilitate communication across Anglican provinces. Now, a province is like a national church, okay? So we're part of the Anglican Church of North America, so that's a province, which includes Canada, the United States, and the Caribbean, and I think maybe parts of Mexico as well. Um, <clears throat> all right, so they wanted to facilitate greater communication across Anglican provinces to advise provinces when the need for structural changes arose, to foster interprovincial cooperation and mission, to facilitate ecumenical dialogue with other Christian traditions, and to study topics of interest to the greater communion. Approximately every three years, the ACC meets in person with provinces choosing and sending bishops, clergy, and lay representatives. Okay. Then in 1978, Michael Coggan, who was then the Archbishop of Canterbury, called for a gathering of the primates. Right? Primates are the leading bishops in a province. Um, to gather together for a collegial exchange of thoughts, consultation, and prayer. So at some point in the late 20th century, recognition by the Archbishop of Canterbury, participation in the Lambeth Conference, membership in the Anglican Consultative Council, and invitation of a province's archbishop to the primates meeting became acknowledged as the four instruments of communion. This is a very recent innovation, okay? So if your church could check off those four boxes, then you could say that you were part of the Anglican Communion. But the unity of the Anglican Communion started to be tested almost as soon as it was formed, um, but especially so by the late 1990s. So the branch of the Anglican Church in the United States historically right, has been the Episcopal Church of the United States, or the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States. Frankly, they've always been on the forefront of change and revisionism. So let's just start with a little history lesson. Love it or hate it, the American 1928 Book of Common Prayer represented significant changes in Anglican theology and worship. Okay, so for instance, this prayer book replaced the overtly penitential scriptural sentences at the start of daily offices with other scriptural sentences that conveyed more of an invitation to worship rather than a call to confess sin. The exhortation before the confession of sin was shortened, and the absolution from sin again softened the penitential nature of the daily office. New rubrics were added making the confession of sin completely optional at evening prayer. A new rubric was added to the order for Holy Communion, allowing for the reading of the Ten Commandments to be entirely omitted from the service in favor of the summary of the law. So long as the Decalogue was read once monthly, it stipulated. Similarly, the exhortations before the communion were made optional and only required three Sundays out of the year. The historic combination was also replaced entirely with the much, much softer-toned office for Ash Wednesday. So the cumulative effect of these revisions was a much weaker portrayal of the reality and consequences of sin in the prayer book. Right Now, Anglicans, we talk a lot about this, this dictum, lex orandi, lex credendi, right, which roughly translated means that the, the way that we regulate prayer regulates what we believe, right? So what we say and do in worship shapes our theology. So when we revise our prayer book, essentially we're changing our doctrine. 
Other changes were made to the liturgy in 1928, shifting away from Thomas Cranmer's moderate Calvinism in favor of more Tractarian high churchmanship. So whether or not you like these changes to the liturgy, the reality is that they did forever break the common prayer that had once been shared by Anglicans across the globe. American Anglicans now had their prayers, which were not the same as Anglicans elsewhere in the world. All right. Moving forward a little bit, 1948, the Lambeth Conference met, and they advised, uh, actually, sorry, before that, 1944, Ronald Hall, who was then the Bishop of Hong Kong, ordained Florence Lee Tim Oi as a priest, right, first woman to be ordained as a priest, without consultation from or consideration for the rest of the Anglican Communion, departing from two millennia of church tradition. Four years later, 1948, the Lambeth Conference advised that the ordination of Florence Lee Tim Oi, and I quote, would be against the tradition and order of the Anglican Communion, and they dismissed the need for further examination of women's ordination to the priesthood at that time. In 1968, the Lambeth Conference again took up discussion about the case for women's ordination to the priesthood, and again did not find a compelling reason to depart from the received tradition. Then in 1974, three rogue bishops of the Episcopal Church of the United States ordained 11 women as priests without authorization from synod. In 1976, without consultation from or consideration for the rest of the Anglican Communion, the Episcopal Church unilaterally voted to allow women to be ordained as bishops. Then in 1978, the Lambeth Conference again took up discussion about the case for women's ordination to the priesthood. This time, rather than dismissing the matter as out of order, which would result in conflict with the given position of the American Episcopal Church, they instead declared provincial autonomy, enabling each province to decide for themselves what they would do. Now, the rift in common prayer was only made wider by the revisions of the American 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which was broadly shaped by theological liberalism. While it may be possible to argue that the revisions to the 28 prayer book were made to smooth out the service, it's undeniable that the 1979 uh, prayer book sought to replace penitential themes with celebratory themes, utterly watering down Cranmer's strong doctrine of sin. New rubrics were added to the order for Holy Communion, altogether removing the requirement to read the Decalogue, right? Lex orandi, lex credendi, you change worship, you change doctrine. Likewise, the prayer of humble access. We do not presume to come to this, thy table, most merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. We're not going to say that anymore. Completely completely removed and made optional. The confession of sin in the daily office and Holy Communion was updated, removing the phrases, miserable sinners, and there's no health in us. The effect, again, was to soften the tone and to soften the doctrine of sin. A new confession of sin was also offered, approaching sin in a much more generic way. Worst of all, new rubrics made the confession of sin entirely optional at Holy Communion. Then in 1988, the Episcopal Church consecrated the first female bishop in the Anglican Communion. In 1988, the Lambeth Conference discussed the issue of women's ordination to the Episcopacy with the majority of provinces concerned by the American Episcopal Church's innovation over and over and over again. The position of the 1978 Lambeth Conference regarding provincial autonomy, however, was just extended for this particular issue. They left it up to each province to decide for themselves. Is that yes. what Adia for means? Yes. Adia for us simply means that this is an issue upon which we can disagree. Right? It's, it's not a primary gospel issue. All right. By 1998, the majority of provinces in the Anglican Communion, seeing which way the wind was already blowing, decided to get out in front of the conversation about homosexuality in the church. They resolved then that homosexual practice is incompatible with scriptures. And the conference said, and I quote, cannot 
advise the legitimizing or blessing of same-sex unions, nor ordaining those involved in same-gender unions. Four years later, in 2003, the Diocese of New Westminster and the Anglican Church of Canada authorized use of a new right to bless same-sex union. A few months later, the American Episcopal Church consecrated Gene Robinson as the first openly gay and partnered bishop, defying Lambeth Resolution 110 from 1998. Later that year, the ACC formed the Westminster Confession, uh, uh, Westminster, sorry, the Windsor Commission, sorry, not Presbyterian, the Windsor Commission to study problems stemming from the consecration of Gene Robinson. In 2004, the Windsor Commission published the Windsor Report, which recommended a moratorium on further consecrations of actively homosexual bishops and public rights of blessing of same-sex unions, and called for all involved in Robinson's consecration to consider, and I quote, in all conscience whether they should withdraw themselves from representative functions in the Anglican Communion. However, it stopped short of recommending discipline against the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church of Canada. The report also recommended solidifying the connection between the churches of the communion by having each church ratify an Anglican covenant that would, in part, commit them to consulting the wider communion when making such major decisions. It urged those who had contributed to disunity, division, to express their regret. At the 2005 primates meeting, a communique was released calling upon the American Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church in Canada to voluntarily withdraw from the Anglican Consultative Council. Neither church complied. At the 2007 primates meeting, a communique was released asserting its belief that the Episcopal Church has departed from the standard of, of teaching on human sexuality accepted by the communion in the 1998 Lambeth Resolution 110 by consenting to the Episcopal election of a candidate living in a committed same-sex relationship and by permitting rights of blessing for same-sex unions. The Episcopal Church was not moved. In 2008, the Global Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans, or FCA, hosted the first Global Anglican Futures Conference, or GAFCON, in Jerusalem. Seven primates, 291 bishops from 29 countries, and almost 1,200 lay and clergy delegates convened to discuss emerging issues in the Anglican communion. This was the largest gathering of Anglicans in more than 30 years. At the conclusion of the conference, they released the Jerusalem Statement, which recognized that a false gospel was being promoted in the Anglican Communion, as demonstrated by the actions of the American Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church of Canada. The statement also acknowledges the manifest failure of the instruments of communion to exercise discipline in the face of overt heterodoxy, and called for subscription to the formularies. That's the 39 Articles of Religion, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, and the ordinal and the books of homilies as better instruments of communion. The Primates Council of the Global Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans also agreed to the formation of a new Orthodox province of Anglicans in the United States and Canada, the Anglican Church in North America. Four dioceses of the American Episcopal Church would vote to depart from the province, all of which would eventually join the newly formed Anglican Church in North America. Hundreds of parishes would also vote to leave the American Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church of Canada, igniting litigation from the provinces against the diocese and the parishes, some of which are still being fought out in the courts today. Most walked away from everything, handing over their properties and their bank accounts in order to remain faithful to the scriptures. A few weeks later, Rowan Williams, the, fort, uh, the, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, hosted the 14th Lambeth Conference. And Williams ruled out of order, revisiting any conversation about Resolution 110 from the previous conference, or any conversation about homosexuality in general during the conference. Instead, he emphasized an alternative topic of effective, truthful, and prayerful mission, seeing this as a willful deflection from the primary issue negatively impacting the communion, the primates of the provinces of Nigeria, Uganda, Kenya, and Rwanda simply declined the invitation to attend. They separated themselves. 
In 2009, the American Episcopal Church consecrated Mary Douglas Glasspool as the first openly lesbian and partnered bishop, signaling that there was no intention to reverse their policy in compliance with the admonition of the Greater Anglican Communion. 2014, Justin Welby, the new Archbishop of Canterbury, announced that he would be indefinitely postponing the Decennial Lambeth Conference slated to occur in 2018, citing his desire to meet individually with the primates of every province before calling such a gathering. It was widely speculated at the time that the Archbishop was concerned that people just might not come. In 2016, the primates meeting published another communique admonishing the American Episcopal Church, this time writing, and I quote, It is our unanimous desire to walk together. However, given the seriousness of these matters, we formally acknowledge the distance by requiring that for a period of three years, the Episcopal Church no longer represent us on ecumenical and interfaith bodies, should not be appointed or elected to an internal standing committee, and that while participating in the internal bodies of the Anglican Communion, they will not take part in decision-making on any issues pertaining to doctrine or polity. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, failed to follow through with any of that censure. Four months later, William Nye, the Secretary General of the Archbishop of Canterbury's Council, confirmed that clergy in the Church of England are allowed to enter into same-gender civil partnerships. They're allowed to offer prayers in support of same-gender couples. They're allowed even to make arguments in favor of changing church doctrine on the issue of human sexuality. The archbishop insists that there had been no change of doctrine in the Church of England and that somehow Lambeth Resolution 110 was still being upheld. In 2017, the Archbishops of York and Canterbury jointly announced the formation of a pastoral advisory group aimed at supporting and advising dioceses in the Church of England on the current pastoral approach to the church to human sexuality with a focus on same-sex couples, ultimately creating a major teaching document on marriage and sexuality to be endorsed by the House of Bishops. The group subsequently became the Living in Love and Faith Project. In 2022, as the coronavirus pandemic began to ease, Justin Welby, Archbishop of Canterbury, finally hosted the Lambeth Conference. Bishops from Nigeria, Rwanda, and Uganda boycotted the event altogether, though some bishops associated with the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans, or GAFCON, did choose to attend, right? as did the bishops of the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans, in order once again to contend for the faith once for all handed down. The event was more tightly curated than previous Lambeth conferences to avoid further conflict over the issue of human sexuality, with Archbishop Justin Welby's call to walk together permeating all discussion. By this time, the Episcopal Church of the United States, the Anglican Church of Canada, the Scots Episcopal Church, the Church of Wales, the Anglican Church of New Zealand, Eritrea, Polynesia, the Episcopal Anglican Church in Brazil and the Anglican Church of Southern Africa had all formally embraced revisionist doctrines and liturgy for human sexuality. At the conference, Archbishop Welby clearly presented his vision for the communion that two mutually exclusive truths, the traditionalist and the revisionist views on homosexuality and gender, can and must somehow coexist. Though traditionalists, still the vast majority, called for a reaffirmation of Resolution 110 from the 1998 Lambeth Conference, the Archbishop declined to facilitate such a vote and announced that he would not practice discipline against these revisionist provinces. For the first time at a Lambeth Conference, traditionalist bishops declined to receive communion with revisionist bishops. And then in January of 2023 the conclusion of the Living in Love and Faith project. The House of Bishops and the General Senate of the Church of England voted to approve liturgical rites for the blessing of same-sex unions. After Archbishop Justin Welby speaks in favor of the motion, a commission is formed to study gendered language in the church's liturgy and consider the use of gender-neutral names and pronouns for God. The following week, at a meeting of the Anglican Consultative Council, the Archbishop still insisted that there had not been a change of doctrine in the Church of England, and somehow Lambeth Resolution 110 was still being upheld. 
However, he acknowledged that some in the communion would not find this acceptable. One week later, the Primates Council of the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans released a press statement grieving the Church of England's departure from the faith once for all handed down and rejecting Justin Welby as the first among equals and leader of the Anglican communion, which leads us to the events in Rwanda a couple weeks ago. All right, so April 17th through 21st, members of the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans joined with the Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans for the fourth GAFCON meeting, which was held in Kigali, Rwanda. The, province, uh, the primates of 10 provinces attended, along with uh, 1,300 delegates from 52 countries, among them 315 bishops, 456 other clergy, and 531 laity. At the conclusion of the conference, the Kigali commitment was released, which describes the events of the conference and the mutual commitments of the provinces that were in attendance. The document emphasized the final authority of Scripture over all matters of doctrine and practice in the church, over and above any human structures. It also acknowledged the current state of brokenness within the communion, stating that despite 25 years of persistent warnings by most Anglican primates, repeated departures from the authority of God's word have torn the fabric of the communion. These warnings were blatantly and deliberately disregarded, and now without repentance, this tear cannot be mended. Just as with the Jerusalem Declaration of 2008, the commitment also recognized the instruments of communion have failed. They failed to preserve the peace and purity of the church. The commitment acknowledges that we are all indeed sinners and all equally guilty before God. So it therefore extends a general call to everyone to live a life of confession and repentance. But it specifically admonishes those provinces who had departed from the biblical Orthodox faith to repent of their failure to uphold the Bible's teaching. A clear line had been drawn in the commitment stating, we long for this repentance, but until they repent, our communion with them remains broken. As new provincial structures had been provided in North America, Scotland, Wales, Brazil, New Zealand, and every other place where orthodoxy had been abandoned, there is also a plan to provide new structures to the faithful in England. Lastly, the commitment sets forth a vision for resetting the Anglican communion around our shared orthodox theology rather than any man-made structures. And this is the money quote that takes us back to Jude. I quote, Both the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans and the Fellowship of Confessing Anglican Primates share the view that due to the departure from orthodoxy articulated above, they can no longer recognize the Archbishop of Canterbury as an instrument of communion. The first among equals of the primates. Here we go. The Church of England has chosen to impair her relationship with the orthodox provinces in the communion. Just as Jude indicts his opponents with causing division by creeping into the church, leading people into all forms of ungodliness, perverting the grace of God and sensuality, it's fair to place the burden of schism upon those who have brought revisionist teaching about human sexuality into our communion. The burden is not upon those who, after admonishing and pleading, ultimately separate. And that's regardless of who wins the property, the historic structures, and the titles. So returning to Jude, there's one final accusation that he makes against his opponents. He calls them sukikoi numa me exontes. Now the word sukikoi is difficult to translate and scholarships all over the place with this. The ESV and the NSB, NASB translated as worldly or worldly minded. It's okay. The King James Version translates it as sensual, which conveys something of sukikoi, but it skews in an unnecessarily sexual direction. Now, Jude did say that his opponents pervert grace into sensuality, but there he uses aselgeia in verse 4, which correctly carries connotations of sexuality. So if that's what Jude intended here, he could have just used that word instead. Sukikoi is the adjectival form of the noun suke from which we get the Freudian and Jungian concept of psyche, the life or the soul or the spiritual personhood that makes us who we are. Now, on the one hand, it does convey something of our unconscious animalistic nature. And I suspect for this reason, Ben Witherington has translated it simply as natural. But I feel that that still leaves something to be desired. I prefer to translate it as spiritual 
which fits if you consider the modern meaning, like when people say I'm spiritual but not religious. In the context of verse 19, I really think it works because Jude says that they are numa me exontes, literally spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, not having. They are full of the spirit of the age, but they are lacking in the Holy Spirit. So I would translate it, they're spiritual, but without the spirit. And this is devastating. Being spiritual but not having the Holy Spirit is something akin to being a Christian if Christ was not raised from the dead. If that were the case, as St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, then our faith would be in vain, and we would be the most worthy of all people to be pitied. But of course, Christ is risen indeed, and our faith is not in vain. But if we wrap ourselves in all the outward trappings of church and religion, if we worship in the most beautiful ancient cathedrals, we adorn our clergy in the most luxurious vestments, we fill our services with the most glorious music and liturgy, but we fail to preach the gospel, which has been revealed to us in the word of God, then it is all in vain. So next week, we'll pick up with the remainder of Jude. Thanks, everybody.